All right, you're, uh, I think you're, ah, thank you. Curtis Bouton, many of you guys know, dear, dear brother, Curtis Bouton, who came to know the Lord later in his life, has gone to be with the Lord. And uh, we're grateful for this man's life among us and the joy that he brought to so many of us. His funeral service, uh, a memorial service, will be next Sunday afternoon, I think 2 o'clock. It's going to be somewhere around 2 o'clock. We haven't got the details yet, but uh, please, if you, if you knew Curtis or his family and you want to be just a part of celebrating his home going, that'll be next Sunday uh, afternoon at about 2 o'clock here at the church. All right, I think I've got a title slide I'm going to put up because apparently there's no title on your notes this morning. So if that'll get up there. Nope, that's not a title slide. That's a title slide. Uh, free to fulfill... We're going to look at Exodus chapter 19. You guys remember that we're studying Exodus? Y'all remember that? Uh, we've taken a break since the fall, but, but if your Bible doesn't flop open to Exodus, it's, it should, because we were there for a while, and we're going to be back in the book of Exodus. Let me, let me uh, introduce a thought to us about what we're about to encounter as we get to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, my wife and I had the, the great joy of enjoying a, a trip together for our 25th anniversary. We went to a little quaint town called Carmel. They have outdoor air conditioning there. It's incredible. Uh, it's not like New Orleans in a lot of ways. But one of the things that we got to do, we just, you know, a lot of little shops, quaint little town. You walk around to everything. And so uh, I think at one point uh, Gina had gone to do something else and I wandered into the bookstore, right? So this is a picture of the bookstore in Carmel, California, called the Pilgrim's Way Books. And, you know, it's an interesting thing. In some way, every one of us in here are pilgrims, right? And so this, this bookstore picks up on that reality. The human life is like a pilgrim story. There's this journey taking place. And so in this bookstore are all kinds of books that can help pilgrims on their way, Right? So I walk in, I love bookstores, and so I can spend hours in there just perusing and looking and checking out ideas. And so there was a religious section, a spirituality section in this bookstore. It's not, not a Christian bookstore, uh, just a bookstore. But an intriguing thing happened to me as I watched and read and pulled books off the shelves. And I think I ended up in that section looking at just about every book that was in the section. It's a decent-sized section. I kept looking because I could not find one book that represented Orthodox Christianity. I could find lots of other world religions. I could find lots of advice on how to live and how to do spirituality and how to address the conditions of your soul. I could not find one book. I could not recognize one author. Most of the authors weren't even from the Western world much less representing Orthodox Christianity. There was a book on Christian mystics that was as far out in outer space biblically than you could find. There was not one Bible in this bookstore. The most influential book of all times didn't make the bookshelf in the Pilgrim's Way bookstore. Now, if you're paying attention, you'll notice when you wake up in the morning you watch the news, you interact with information in your culture, the culture's not featuring the Bible. They don't start a news broadcast by quoting the Bible. They don't end the news broadcast by quoting the Bible. They don't attempt to explain human life 
by quoting the Bible. They don't seem to find any useful help from the Bible in our culture today. As a matter of fact, it's not just that it's not a useful book in, and maybe even a meaningless book. It is a book that's greeted with hostility. So the world that we live in doesn't want to read from the Bible, doesn't want to know what the Bible has to say to us. And so here this morning, you know, you've been living your life. And, and let me just say, every one of us are pilgrims on our way that are reading some kind of book to figure out how to do this. Now, maybe it's not a published book. Maybe you're like, well, I'm not really a reader. You're reading something. You do realize you're reading something. When you lift your eyes up and you watch people's lives, you're reading the script of their life. It's just in a movie format. You're reading things that tell you this is what life is about. This is how you do life. This is what's a priority. This is what's not a priority. So every day of every one of our lives, we're reading somebody's book. Somebody's the author of ideas. And we are pilgrims on our way. We're trying to figure out what's really important in life. And where do we fit in? Where do I fit in? Where do I fit in as a man? Where do I fit in as a child? Where do I fit in with the career? Where do I fit in if I've got this much money? Where do I fit in if I've got this much money? Where do I fit in if I believe certain things? Where do I fit in in a, a, a government that believe certain things if I believe some different things? Where do I fit in if my life lasts for 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, 100 years? You and I are trying to figure out life and we're trying to make sense out of it. Well, where we are here in Exodus chapter 19, we're, we're pulling up to a place here that's going to help us make sense out of life, out of our existence out of where do we fit in this grand scheme of things, right? Now, here's where we are in Exodus 19, right? We pull up to this spot, and the people of God have arrived at Mount Sinai. So they've gathered around the base of this mountain that we know as Mount Sinai. Preceding that, they had spent over 400 years in Egypt, most of that under conditions of oppression and slavery and forced labor and limitations on any kinds of freedoms that they had. And then... Uh, God sent a deliverer and he rescued them and sent them on a journey and he brings them to Mount Sinai, right? So that's where we are. And we always have to answer this question. And if you're picking the Bible up, I hope you are picking the Bible up, even though the culture is not encouraging you to pick the Bible up. You're reading from a book in, in this situation that's about 3,500 years removed from where you are. 3,500 years ago, a bunch of people stood in the desert around the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai. What's that got to do with you and the amount of emails that you get, how many texts you send in a day, and whether your car is the right car, and whether you live in society like America that's modern and technological, what, what does this have to do with you? See, now listen, if, you, if right now you're thinking, you know, I, I haven't really picked the Bible up in a while. I'm not, I'm not hostile to the Bible. I just haven't picked it up in a while, right? You, you don't think this is relevant, do you? The news is relevant. Whatever Donald Trump said yesterday is relevant. But is the Bible relevant? Well, you know, I know some things about the Bible. Can I tell you, I mean, I, I keep staring into the Bible and I keep realizing how little I know. I keep learning more and more and there's more richness there. It's just exciting. So don't assume that, well, I've read the whole Bible. 
Yeah, most of us have, but an infinite God who's got a lot to say probably can't be caught in one reading. So keep reading, right? But here's where we are in Exodus. But here's what I want to draw your attention to. And I think I put this in your outline there. What I'm going to call the Exodus focal points. Here's what Exodus focuses on. And it's very insightful because we're at Mount Sinai, and this is a unique address. Really, in all of the Bible, this is a unique address. This gathering of the people of God at the foot of this mountain is a unique place, right? So here's the layout of Exodus. Exodus 1 through 4 is background and preparation for the Exodus. About 10% of the book is devoted to that. Exodus 5 through 12 is a confrontation with Pharaoh. It's the liberation from the oppression of Egypt. Again, about 19% of the book is devoted to that. Exodus 12 through 18 is a journey through the wilderness to get them to Mount Sinai. Again, about 19% devoted to that. Exodus chapter 19 all the way to the end of Exodus is all sitting at Mount Sinai. That's where it's located. 52% of the book of Exodus. But not just the book of Exodus. Because we're going to be here, it looks like we're going to be here for a while. Now, quite honestly, you're not going to be here that long, but it looks like you are. Because a whole book of Leviticus is at Mount Sinai. And then the next book after that, the first 10 chapters of Numbers is at Mount Sinai. Now, that's only going to be about a year's time frame that they're at Mount Sinai. But there's some business being done here. There's something happening in God. And even if you look at a bigger scheme of this, listen to this. Out of all the books that, that the chapters that Moses wrote, wrote, Moses writes five books, the first five books of the Old Testament. Right? Listen to this. 58 out of the 187 chapters that he wrote are all at Mount Sinai. That's a third of the book. And it gets worse than that. Eight of the 26 non-Mount Sinai chapters in Numbers, right? Because we're going to move on from there at some point. So there's 26 other chapters that aren't at Mount Sinai, but eight of them are about Mount Sinai and what was said at Mount Sinai. And then you move into the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if you've ever read the Bible, this is the first time I read the Bible. I got lost in it because I had read all these commands and regulations and all these things you're supposed to do in particular ways. And then I got to Deuteronomy and I start reading it all again. And I'm like, what, was this a misprint? What, did I get like a bad Bible here? Just saying the same stuff over again. Well, then I, I learned that Deuteronomy... That word actually means the second law. And it's not the second law. It's, it's the rehearsing of the law that had already been given because they're about to go into the promised land. And God says, wait, time out, time out. It's been a few years since we were at Mount Sinai and I said all these things to you guys fresh. Before we go into the promised land, let me rehearse them all again. So in an interesting way, whatever took place at Mount Sinai gets pulled up all again and presented again in Deuteronomy. So you have this enormous amount of dedication to whatever is taking place here at Mount Sinai. So look in Exodus chapter 19 with me. And as I, as I read this, what I want us to, to be captured by is where you and I are going to locate the center of the book of Exodus. What is this book primarily trying to focus us on? Because out of that focus, you and I are going to live our lives. We're going to draw some conclusions about how to orient our pilgrim's journey and what really, really, really is important to us. So let me just pick up the first six verses here of Exodus chapter 19. Verse 1. 
says, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So three new moons, so we're less than three months out, probably about two months have passed since they left Egypt, journeyed, and now they've arrived here at Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Well, Lord, these words spoken some 3,500 years ago still have so much to say to us. You were speaking to your people, and Lord, we are gathered today as your people. So Lord, give us ears to hear what you have to say, that which is timeless and so helpful for every one of us who are pilgrims on this journey through life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so question. What do you see as the center of the book of Exodus? Right? Careful, I think I may have written this out in your outline. If not, let me just read it to you. If we read the Bible and ignore where the Scripture places the center of its message, this is what we will do. We will create a man-centered advice book that exists to teach morals and offers suggestions on how man can self-improve his own existence. If we misplace where the Bible places the center of what God's up to, we're going to turn this book into an advice book, a moral advice book. It steers us. It keeps us from being out of bounds. But what is it, what is it trying to focus us on? Well, if you misplace the center you're probably going to end up believing it's focused on you and trying to help you to get wherever it is that you're trying to go. Right? Why is it that there's not a Bible in that bookstore? For the same reason so many people are not interested in reading what the Bible has to say because the Bible has something to say that's very, very uncomfortable. And it's shocking to some people. Some people cannot believe that the Bible is not first and preeminently interested in man. Because that's where most of us locate the center. This is a book about us, about humanity, about the good of humanity, about how to further humanity, improve humanity. So that's where we start, and we almost get offended if that's not where other people go. But is that the center here? Right, let me put up another slide here. All right, there's, there's a couple of events happening here. There's, there's Exodus, which, we, again, Exodus is not a name given to that book from the book. Right, we give it that name. All right, so Exodus is this event of departing from Egypt. 
And then over here is where we are at Mount Sinai down in the south there. So we've traveled through a journey and we've come to Mount Sinai. But, but where is the center of what God is doing? Right? Now listen, if I say the center, that doesn't mean everything else is irrelevant. It's important. It just may not be the culmination. It may not be the centerpiece. Right? So question, do verses like Exodus chapter 3, go back there with me. Does, does that form the center for you? Exodus chapter 3, verse 9. God reveals this to Moses and says, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, <clears throat> I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Right, so God has seen a people being oppressed. They are under the thumb of someone else. And God has said, enough of that. That's wrong. People oppressing people. How many of you guys know that that's, that's a pretty popular message? A lot of us like that message. And rightly so. A lot of people all over the world, as a matter of fact, who are fairly clueless about what the Bible really is all about, have some idea about this story. They know something about Exodus. They know something about being delivered out of the hands of people who oppress other people. There are noble causes. There are books written all over the place about periods of history where the haves were oppressing the have-nots. And there's movies made and there's history that recounts those places and those times where government regimes that had power held people under its power until the day that some kind of liberation took place. Right? Whether it's the scenes from World War II when, when European cities were being liberated and U.S. forces were driving through towns. People had been liberated from Hitler's oppression over them. There is this, it's right. It's right for people to get out from underneath the cruelty of other people. Civil rights movements that have, that have happened, not just in this country, but all over the world historically, where a group of people were oppressed. Somebody else managed to seize power before they could have it and then use that power against them and hold them down and limit them for, for, for their own benefit. That's, that's happened throughout history. Can, can I tell you, though, you can, you can love the message, that, that part of Exodus without loving the gospel and without truly loving God. Can I, can I tell you one of the greatest difficulties that civil rights movements has created for the church is that when civil rights movements, whatever that they are, whether they're color-oriented, whether they are haves and have-nots, whether you're talking about the peasants in France and the peasant revolt that happened because the haves oppressed the have-nots. If your message becomes liberation <clears throat> from oppressive people, then you can love that part, that part to the north, that part of get out of Egypt. You can love that part of the Bible. But you might not be really interested in chapter 19 and everything that comes after it. Matter of fact, 
that might seem to be a little bit inhibitive. See, we, we love the idea of freedom. But the title of my message is Freed to Fulfill. To fulfill something. It's not just about humans being free and casting off any form of restraint that's on our lives. And every form of somebody else imposing a view on us is wrong and it's to be opposed. And that's, that's the kind of where our country is right now. Tim, Tim Keller's got a really interesting insight from a message. He says this in your outline. It says, the narrative of the modern culture is a freedom narrative. The freedom narrative says that the job of society is not to promote virtue. The job of society is to free every individual to live as they wish. To live in any ways as they wish, as long as they don't harm somebody else. So the only virtue is freedom of choice, and the only sin is limiting anybody's freedom of choice. Does that sound like the America that you're living in right now? The only people that get bashed by the press or thrown around are those people who dare to say that anybody else ought to be doing something a certain way. You intolerant, opinionated people. He goes on and says, religion is the villain. Because religious people, religion in general, Christianity in particular, get in the way of that narrative. So you have to do something to marginalize that voice. You want to know the main reason why people don't want to read the Bible? Because it interrupts your freedom narrative. I want to be free. And I'm for anybody who wants to get the oppression off of me. I'm for anybody who wants to do that. But I just want to be free to do whatever it is I want to do. My question is, is that the message of the Bible? Is that the message of Exodus? This great liberating God who shows up in people's lives and pulls off all the oppression in their life and just turns them loose, lets them off the leash so that they can... They can go do whatever they want. Here, I'm I'm, I'm releasing you from Egypt. Go wherever you want. Live it up. Have a good life. You want to go north? Go north. Want to go west? Go west. You want to go somewhere else? Go wherever you want to go. Is that the message of the Bible? It's amazing how that's become what people think God was up to. That's what Jesus was up to. He just came into people's lives and he wanted to get all those nasty, opinionated people to leave the other people alone. Quit imposing your rules and your ideas and your control on them and just let people do whatever they want to do. But that's not the story we get here. The story in Exodus is a God-centered story. It's freedom, but it's freedom that's going to go somewhere in this world, right? And your outline there, I think I put Exodus is not about humans finding their way to personal liberty. It's about humans finding their place before God. That's why Exodus chapter 3 is not the center of the book of Exodus. Because it's on its way somewhere else. It's not the ultimate stopping point. Even chapter 10, when they're getting liberated, and chapter 12, when they're moving on out of Egypt, that's still not the center. They haven't found their ultimate address yet. They're on their way to it. And liberty was part of that. 
And when you read these verses about God coming in to, to bring liberty, right next door to them is an assignment. Right next door to them is a purpose to be fulfilled, right? Exodus chapter 10, verse 3 in your outline there. It says, Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, right? So they're still in Egypt. They're fighting this oppressive ruler. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Right? This, is, this is a lot here. Right? You read the Bible carefully, it's saying a lot to us. Do you find it interesting that God acts like he's got ownership over people? Let my people go. Well, what if they don't want to be your people, God? Do you recognize people have rights? Everybody's got the right to choose, don't they? God says, let my people go. They're mine. But what's interesting here is if you locate the center of that, hey, that, I love that. God's for freedom. Let people go free. Why? That they may serve me. Well, that's what's happening at Mount Sinai. They are being introduced to and learning to serve God at Mount Sinai. And they're going to camp out there longer and receive more information at that address than they receive anywhere else. Because the great culmination, the great call of God is that he would have a people who would serve him and his purpose in this world. Why does God interrupt what's going on in Egypt? Not just to liberate people to do whatever they want, but to set them free into his purpose for their lives. Now listen, man was never created, never created for complete autonomy and self-existence. Man was never created for that. Man doesn't know what to do with that. Man freaks out when that's what's given to him because he was never made for that. Right? So man is made to serve someone. Right? Bob Dylan said that, right? Everybody's got to serve somebody. That's a fact because God made us that way. Now, now maybe to, to us, you know, we've got this strange American view of things and, and boy, our modern culture, that's, we're breathing the air of this, is trying to tell us that we shouldn't have any boundaries in our lives. There shouldn't be any moral laws that govern and force any individual to do something in their life that they don't prefer, that they don't want to do. So if you're coming along and saying, hey, God's great call has got these boundaries to it, well, what kind of freedom is that? Well, it, quite honestly, it's the freedom that makes sense to us all over the place when we really think about it. Everything that's created, listen, everything that's created, this is my engineering mind speaking to you, everything that's created has boundaries to it. Nothing that's created is supposed to be able to do everything in whatever fashion it wants to do it. It's designed for something. Right? So how many of you guys know that a, a train that, you know, you hear the train, boom, boom, it's pulling things, it's, it's racing through your neighborhood. It's designed for something. And in, in fulfilling its design, it needs these two tracks to run on. And wherever that track goes is where that train is going. Does that sound free to you? 
Because it passes by something over here and maybe it wants to go see that. Maybe it wants to take a visit at the 7-Eleven. It's passing by. Now, are you one of those folks who says, that train ought to be free, brother. You need to set that train free from those tracks. Does that really sound like a good deal to you? But it's ultimate freedom, isn't it? Well, listen, we don't call that freedom. We, we call it a wreck. We call it a catastrophe when trains come off the track. Nobody listens to the news and goes, woohoo, another train found its freedom. Look at that, honey. Boxcars everywhere, flames, fire. But that train's free, honey. Finally, it's free from its track. Nobody looks at life that way. Right? God has, has created fish. Fish get their oxygen totally different than the way in which you and I get our oxygen. They need oxygen, but they're just designed different. So they can live underwater. Maybe you'd like to live underwater. You can't, can you? They can live underwater day after day after day, swimming and doing their thing. But what if that fish decides, you know what? I want real freedom. I'm, you know, I pop up in the, I check out the squirrels running across in the tree. I want that kind of freedom. So what do you know? They swim up onto the beach, and what happens after that? Yeah, we don't call that freedom, do we? We call that a stiff, bloated, stinky fish is what we call that. (laughs) Because there really isn't any freedom for that fish outside of what it was designed for. Man is a created being. God created us. And he put boundaries on our lives. We exist for a purpose. And the greatest freedom we can ever have is to fulfill that purpose. To come off the tracks and do something else is not freedom. It's a wreck in our lives. So how about this for what God had in mind? Man was created by God, for God, to image God. To uniquely reveal God to the world, to serve God, to know God, and to affectionately love and worship God. Right? That's the tracks that man was created to run on. That's the atmosphere in which man was designed to live. And when we get to Mount Sinai, God is going to take his time and very slowly unpack what it looks like to live in man's purpose and to exist in this world as an image bearer of who he is, making God known, learning to love God and to know God deeply and to have our affections toward God stirred up. Man's not created to do whatever he wants. Now, listen, this jumps into the world of our news headlines, doesn't it? Man's not free to do whatever he wants with marriage. He's not free to do that. Because marriage is God's idea for a bigger purpose than just two people hanging out together. Marriage is about the image of God. So this unique purpose that you and I have to live in marriages with another person is so that the purpose of God might be fulfilled in another way that the image of God is seen in this world. 
So the idea that a man would marry a man and a woman would marry a woman, that's not up for grabs. That's off the tracks. That's a wreck. God had something in mind when he gave us the ability to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I mean, you recognize that for God's purpose in man, that's a little bit different than the way in which spiders reproduce. Just lay thousands of eggs, whatever, just let them go off and do their spider thing. You know, I'm pretty sure there's no homeschooling going on with the spiders. <laughs> you just hatched and you're on your own, babe. But that's not man. And that's not how man is designed. And that's not how man fulfills his purpose. So when you stare out at a culture and you look at a culture that can reproduce like spiders and rabbits, but it doesn't lead its children. It doesn't care for its children. It doesn't nurture them and bring them into a knowledge of God. It just doesn't even know how many kids you have. That's our culture. That's not freedom. I want freedom to be able to be with whoever I want, however I want. And if that's okay with her, what's that to you? That's not freedom. That's off the tracks. That's a wreck. It's outside of how God has created us. And so, I mean, don't, you know, I know we, we have great respect for science and we love what science is, is teaching and helping us understand all kinds of things. And it does have its place. It's doing an incredible job in many categories. But the basic premise of a science without God is a biological concept called the survival of the fittest. Which gives license to that which is genetically superior to have the right to overthrow and to even destroy that which is inferior because ultimately that which is genetically inferior is not good for the human race. If I pull God out of this, you got no argument with me. If I just say, you know what, Adolf Hitler was right. He felt like he had figured out how to raise a superior race of human beings. Genetically, he had found people that had greater intelligence, greater strength. And let's protect that gene pool and further humanity on the planet. And, and let's exterminate and eliminate the weaker gene pool that's out there. Listen, if you don't have any God, how can you tell him he was wrong? The only way you can tell him he was wrong was because at Mount Sinai you learned something about why God created man, that he has dignity and every individual life means something because they are image bearers of God. That's what gives that person genetically inferior a role to play in this world. Listen, all this stuff has got to answer to why did God make us? You know what God didn't do? He didn't create us so that he could be misplaced and ignored by us. If God had wanted to do that, if the God of the universe didn't really care about how you lived and who you're going to be, what you're going to follow, where your love will go, well, then the center of Exodus is this first explosion. Boom! You get to be free. Go and be free. And the God of the universe doesn't care whether you ever pay attention to him ever at all for the rest of your life. You go be who you want to be. That God is for you. He loves you just like you are. Go and live and find fulfillment in this world. That's not the book of Exodus, is it? 
I, I know people want that to be the story of Exodus. That is not the story of Exodus. The story of Exodus was to liberate them from Egypt so that they could come to Mount Sinai and meet their God and know him and follow him and serve him for the rest of their existence. That's the center of Exodus, right? And God wastes no time, right? Go, are you back in chapter 19? God wastes no time in clarifying what's most important for man's existence and not their own personal endeavors. Verse 3, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God, what were you doing? And kicking Pharaoh's butt. Well, I was releasing the chains that held my people away from me so that I could bring them to me. That's what I was doing. See, if you don't see your life as belonging to God, as oriented first for him, then you fight every day your pilgrim's way through life. What are you going to do today to fulfill you? What are you going to do today that, that brings you joy? What are you going to do today that reinforces how you want to feel about life? God's liberated you for himself. And God, look, at, you know, when we get to chapter 20 here, and we will get there, I promise, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, now God's been speaking, right? This is, this is God's public declaration to his people. I'm the God who did all that. Business number one, first thing, not nice to see you. Your kids look cute. Thanks for making the long journey. I hope it wasn't too difficult. None of that. First order of business. You shall have no other gods before me. Period. You want to fulfill the purpose for which you were freed, then the priority of your life is God himself being your God and you following him and serving him. Isn't it strange that God liberated people who were serving another so that they might serve yet again. See, I know in our liberation thinking, that's not really freedom. Freedom is complete autonomy. There is no created thing that ever has complete autonomy. Why do we fall in love with these goofy ideas? It philosophically, I'm sorry, it's just a stupid thing to say. Nothing created can say it's autonomous. Thank you. I'm not trying to be real deep here, but only an uncreated thing can claim autonomy, and that's only God. Everything else comes from something, therefore it's got a design to it, it's got a purpose for it. And that's true of our lives as well. Look, I think I put these verses in your outline. Isaiah 43, verse 20. God this is why, part of the reason why I want us to study Exodus is that so as we study the rest of the Bible, we can borrow from what we learn here, right? So this is, this is how the prophet Isaiah borrows from Exodus. Look in Exodus 43, 20, he says, I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. What's he talking about here? The experience that they had in Exodus. To give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, 
that they might declare my praise. Why do these people standing at the foot of Mount Sinai exist? Well, because God formed them for himself, for a purpose, that they might declare his praise. Later in Isaiah chapter 49, he says, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Right? That's a purpose statement. He says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you, right? I'm bigger task. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God has a purpose to fulfill. God raised up a people to fulfill that purpose. What are we doing at Mount Sinai? Learning about that purpose. Mount Sinai is a giant playbook meeting before they are sent on their way into this world to accomplish the purpose of God. They are freed. Thank God they are freed. 430 years, most of it under oppression and slavery and desperation and cries out to God. Thank God they are free. But don't put the exclamation point there located at Mount Sinai. God's great purpose for them is yet in front of them to fulfill his great purpose. By being what? Well, Isaiah says, he said to me, you are my servant. You are my servant, Israel. You are my servant, church of Jesus Christ. You are my servant, Keith. Do you, do you view your life as a servant? That's, that's not a popular word, is it? I mean, even in Christianity, you don't hear it a whole lot anymore. Like, we want, we want to talk about a lot of things, but I don't know if we want to talk about being servants. But yet, that's what God describes us as. We are servants. And by the way, you know, the Bible doesn't present being a servant of God like this. Oh, you know, like we drew the short straw. Like, oh, shoot. What'd you get? Servant of God. Jeez. <laughs> well, what were you hoping for? I was hoping for complete autonomy. I mean, <laughs> can I draw again? God, can I draw again? It's like, did, did we finish second, really? Because remember, everybody's got to serve somebody. You, you sure you don't think you drew the best straw by getting to serve God? What would you, what would you rather serve? You'd rather serve you? Some of y'all haven't spent enough time with yourselves. <laughs> I, I would not rather serve me. I, I don't, I'm puzzled why anybody really can put up with me pretty much. Serve, serve me? You know, have you bumped into the limitations of your own ideas? And all that you don't know? And all the strange motives that are inside of you? I'm so, I, you know, I'd be unpredictably weird to serve. You feel that way about you? I mean, who are we going to serve? This is a bad deal? Isaiah made it sound like it's a great deal. Isaiah 48. It says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit. And this is a profitable thing. This is a good thing for us. Who leads you in the way you should go. In the way you should go? So that means there's a way that you shouldn't go? Yes, there is. 
Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Well, where did they get the commandments? Mount Sinai. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Does that sound like a bad deal? God commanded our lives to be something at Mount Sinai. He gave revelation and insight about himself that required us to adjust ourselves to him, to orient ourselves to him, to not just pilgrims on the way, drive past God on our way to something else, to realize everything about me was to be oriented around God a certain way. And he reveals himself at Mount Sinai. And he reveals things about us at Mount Sinai. God doesn't apologize. He doesn't act like we got a raw deal here. But keep in mind, you and I are breathing the air of extreme autonomy. Extreme autonomy. We are being trained in the views of, can I say this, radical human autonomy. Right? There's this thing out there, everybody's worried about radical Islam. People in the Middle East are being trained in radical Islam. Can I tell you long before radical Islam really messes this country up, radical human autonomy has already been here and it's messing this country up, quite honestly, much worse than anything ISIS could do to it. This idea that locates me at the center, my personal preferences, my views, what I want to do with my life, how I want to live my life, that idea is in us. And, and warning, fearful warning as a pastor, I, I think we're getting like uh, lack of sensory issues, like, like we're, only dogs can hear that whistle. Well, we used to be able to hear that sound. I don't even know if we hear it anymore. And when you stop hearing that that's a ridiculous, autonomous position to take, that that's a personal preference at the expense of a greater calling, when you stop hearing that, then you become vulnerable to living out of the same exact set of motives. I think I shared this quote with you guys a while back. It's interesting. Tim Keller, one of his books, he's quoting from a fellow named Andrew Del Banco. His book was called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. He says, sometime in the later 20th century, something died, he wrote, namely... Any conception of a common destiny worth tears, sacrifice, and maybe even death. Instant gratification was installed as the hallmark of the good life. Instant gratification was installed as the hallmark of a good life. Both devotion to God and anything like American patriotism are laughed at among people of advanced views. And so there's no collective vision left. The contemporary person, for example, does not feel much guilt because he no longer feels there exists something in the world that transcends himself. When do people feel bad? When things don't go their way. When they don't get a fair shake. When the opportunity is not given to them. 
That's when they feel bad. Do they feel bad about something outside of themselves not getting done and accomplished that might not wash up on their shore and reward them? No. This sense sense of collective thought. I mean, even as a, you know, America had influence from Christian values. And so there was this right sense that I am an individual amongst a bigger picture. I don't exist, exist just for me. There's a greater cause than my script and my personal activity. So when in this country people have got to go to war and they can come together and they can fight together for a cause, that patriotism element, it's because people can see that they are a piece of something bigger than themselves. That is rapidly getting lost. Our laws reflect it. Our moods reflect it. Our attitudes reflect it. But for a Christian, there's there's no greater revelation about who we are. You know, this, this is... This is quite different than what most Christians are hearing today about what it is to even be a Christian. Popular Christian broadcasting, it makes things accessible to folks. This is not the feature message. What's the feature message is liberation. You've been freed. Go and be whoever it was that you were supposed to be. God has given you talents. God has given you gifts. You have a destiny. Does this all sound like Christian teaching you've heard? Discover what it is that you've always wanted to be. Be the best you. As though what God came to do was to liberate us, to discover our inner talents and our inner abilities, whether we acknowledge him, whether he's first in our life or not, whether we're ultimately fulfilling his purpose, we just want to figure out how to fulfill ours. Personal destiny teaching has infected the church at an unbearable level. I don't know how many churches you walk in the doors, and the primary message that you'll hear over and over and over again is a personal destiny message. You and your personal destiny. Listen, when they, when they got across the Red Sea... Moses didn't have a camp meeting and say, hey, look, guys, God's done it. Isn't this great? God's done it. He's destroyed our enemies. He's gotten us out of here. Listen, I'm headed this way. I don't know where you guys are going, but hey, good luck, man, whatever you're up to. Hey, you know what? You'd be excellent at this. There was a piece of land we passed a while ago. I bet you could run that place great. That's not the meeting they have. They are free to go on their way somewhere else. They have not yet arrived. They're going to arrive when they get to Mount Sinai and they are face to face with their God. And he has a purpose for their life. So beware, I think I put this in that line, beware, you can't truly hear the gospel without hearing that God is restoring you to his original purpose. He's calling you to a particular life that fulfills a particular purpose. Question, do you want that life? Be careful here, because I I don't know if we've really heard the gospel, if the gospel sounds like there was this really cool guy named Jesus, you know, he was sort of hippie-ish and hung out with anybody and everybody and just didn't expect anything from anyone, just loved everybody right where they were at. I don't know if he smoked up or not, but probably. (laughs) And man, he just loves you and he he just wants you to have a better life, man. He just came to liberate people from whatever it was that was controlling them, you know what I mean? Really? What do I do? Well, you just pray, man. Just 
Just pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart. I mean, come into your backpack and go wherever you're going. Does that sound like the gospel to you? Is there a reason why Exodus sounds the way it does? I think it's, it's trying to teach us something. It's trying to communicate something to us. Every book that I picked up in that bookstore had, had no boundaries in it, except for the people who tried to create boundaries. It had boundaries on having boundaries. But whatever it is you want to do, every book was all for you. <laughs> do whatever you want to do. You want to impersonate a turtle the rest of your life? Hey, man. I don't know, meditate, get alone, you know, t- get in touch with nature, be a turtle. Go ahead. There was no books in there about a greater calling for your life that didn't come from you, that came from God, that God had for you to fulfill. Listen, in your version of Christianity, did you, did you welcome Jesus to free you or did you follow him wherever he's going and wherever he takes your life? Isn't it interesting, hold, hold this story against the backdrop of a very familiar New Testament verse, because this is not an Old Testament concept, by the way. This is in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you to the end. All right, can I just sum up what we're about to learn for the next several, several chapters? Two major things are going to happen at Mount Sinai. God is going to give his commands, and God is going to install a tabernacle. Those are the two major things that are about to happen at Mount Sinai. God is going to give his commands, and God is going to install a tabernacle. Now, when he introduces a tabernacle, he's going to use Matthew chapter 28 language. He's going to say, take up an offering from all those whose hearts move them, that you may build me a tabernacle that I may dwell among my people. Lo, I am with you to the end. God wants to be with his people, but God is holy. And you and I might need to learn something about what it means to live in fellowship with a holy God. That's what's going to happen at Mount Sinai. Now, my question for us today, Eric, you can go ahead and come. My question for us today, is this what your salvation sounds like to you? Is this what it sounds like for you to be a Christian? Listen, I get that that. You know, when, you, when Egypt gets really bad in our lives and we get really oppressed and we're broken and we're crying out and we're, life isn't working, we cry out to God in that moment. Okay, what are you crying out to God to do just to get me out of Egypt? That's what I want him to do. God, get me out of this. I'm in a jam. I'm depressed. It's horrible. Get me out. God doesn't just get you out, though. When, when Jesus gets in your life, he invites you to follow him all the way to Mount Sinai, where you can learn who God is and the purpose that he had for you to fulfill with your life from this day forward so that you'll never stop following Jesus. 
It's not going to be this, I had this encounter with Jesus and he set me free. I used to be this dope, smoking, depressed individual and, and God's just set me free. Well, what are you doing today? Well, yeah, you know, Jesus is somewhere way on the edges. That's not the gospel. The gospel's called us to God. He picked us up on eagle's wings and brought us to himself so that we might live before him and he may dwell among us and we might be his people with a purpose to fulfill in this world. Listen, one of the things we're going to probably debunk for some folks as we study through this section of scripture is the sad misuse and misunderstanding about the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Because I don't know, some of y'all right now are going, oh, wait a minute, Keith, there's, you know, there's that verse in Hebrews about the, you know, the Mount Zion versus Mount Sinai. Are we supposed to be kind of loving this mountain? Are we supposed to hate this mountain? Isn't this where God threw down a bunch of laws and said, hey, have a whack at it. See if you can do these things. <laughs> they can't. Check it out. <laughs> They're going to screw up so bad. And finally they'll realize they've got to abandon all these ideas anyway. Is that your understanding of what's happening here at Mount Sinai? Or, or is God revealing something about himself here? Right, you do understand that when they get to Mount Sinai, God's not saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm thinking about making y'all my people, but here's what's got to happen, all right? I'm going to install these 10 rules. You guys have a whack at this. If you're 10 for 10, then you get to be my people, all right? That's how this works. No, he goes to Pharaoh and he says what to them? Let my people go. When were they his people? Before they ever get to Mount Sinai. When did they become his people? This is a Bible quiz now. When did they become his people? When he met with Abraham. And he covenanted with Abraham. He made these people that were enslaved in Egypt his people. These are my people. You let my people go. So they are already saved by grace. Did Abraham have to perform to be God's people? No. Did they have to perform afterwards? No. Is Mount Sinai about getting them to perform so that they could be God's people? No. They're already his people. But they're going to learn something about him. And they're going to learn about how to be his people for a purpose. That his glory might be demonstrated and seen throughout all the earth. Listen, this morning, that same purpose sits before every life that's here. So here's what I want us to do. So I want us to get quiet for a moment. And I, and I want you to think for a second about where you are in your relationship with God. And where the center is for you. Yeah, if you're here this morning and you're telling some story about, man, yeah, 10 years ago I was going through a bad time and I had this thing happen in my life and boom, 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 and God did something great. But my question for you today is, are you following Christ today into his purpose? Are you here this morning living out what he taught at Mount Sinai? Not, not rules so you can get right with God. Now, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about manifesting the life of God into this world so that you might be a light to the nations and that God's praise and character might be seen throughout the earth. Are you here this morning because you came this morning to figure out how do, how do I do that more? How do I live for that purpose? How do I fulfill that purpose in my life? All right. I asked you a question at the beginning of the service. 
How many of you are members of Lakeview Christian Center? You don't have to raise your hand again because now everybody who didn't raise their hand is, is being highlighted. All right, if you're in this church and you're not a member of the church, can I just, why? Doesn't get you any points in heaven, doesn't make you God's people. I get all that. But it does raise the question of how serious are you taking the mandate, the call, that you have been freed to fulfill something in your life. And you are part of this group right here as a means of fulfilling that. You partner with others, you use your gifts, you serve, you give, you make your life available, you, you, you say no to this thing that's gotten too big in your life because at Mount Sinai you learn something about the purpose of God for your life. This needs to stay big. That needs to get smaller. You use your finances a certain way. You use your time a certain way. You use your energy a certain way. Your mind, you're just not a person who said, you know what? I've always wanted to be a fireman or an actor or whatever. And I'm sure glad Jesus liberated me so that he could give me everything I ever wanted in this world. Maybe he does want you to be an actor. But your greatest call is to fulfill his purpose. You and I are servants of God. He liberated you from serving sin and ourselves so that we would serve him. So how seriously are you taking that? I'm not saying the only measuring rod is whether you're a member of a local church, but it says something about you if you're not. Are you here this morning to fulfill what God has freed you to do? I pray that's the case. And if not, I pray that we rethink whatever it is that we think it means to be a Christian. God liberated us so that we might receive his purpose in our lives and fulfill it for his glory, for his namesake, for his good. Let's stand up together. Let the, let the Lord speak into your own heart this morning. Look back over the path that you've been walking as a pilgrim through this life. At some point, you, you came to know Christ. And you started down a pathway, a journey. What is it that you want? What do you really want? What are you praying about? What are you begging Jesus to do? What are the things that bother you? Oh, God, make sure this gets done. Oh, no, God, make sure this gets done. Listen, have you lost your way, though? You stop praying about, oh, God, let your kingdom come. Let your glory be seen. God, use me as a servant in any way that you want to. God, take all of me. God, use my possessions and my goods so that your praise might be on the lips of people. God, let every drop of my blood be available to you. Let every ounce of who I am be yours. You have called me to yourself and you've called me to have no other gods before you. You 
want to be my everything. Maybe this morning you need to tell God you've lost your way. God, I encountered you years ago, but I've lost my way. Tell him that. Tell him that right now. through a tough time in your life right now feel oppressed you feel underneath the weight of things you feel like things are against you you're like these Israelites you've been crying out for relief well God has sent his son to overcome what oppresses you to liberate you from those things, from depression and fear and anxiety and manipulation and being intimidated by life and diagnosis and people. God has sent his son to bring an end to the day that you've lived in Egypt all these years. But hear him clearly. He's calling you to himself. It's not just here to turn off the difficulty. He's here to bring you to himself. Do you, do you want to come to him? Well, if you do, tell him that. Tell him you want to come to him. Say, Lord Jesus, I, I want to come to you. My life is broken. Tell him this. And it's empty. It's hard. God, what I hear this morning is that you have a purpose for my life. You designed me. You created me. You've got something for me to fulfill. I don't know if I understand that completely, but I know I want whatever it is that you have. So this morning, I I turn from my own freedom, doing life my own way, and I turn to you. I want to stop serving something besides you, and this morning, I give my life to you as your servant. I believe in you. Jesus, I believe in you. Believe in the life that you lived and the death that you died and the forgiveness of sins that I have in you. I believe in you. Now come, help me. Come, take up your life in me. Come tabernacle in me. Come dwell in me. Send your life to me. And lead me from this day forward. I want to follow you. Well, that's what you have for us. All across this room, young and old, children that are here, old people that just have maybe a few years left, Lord, and everything in between, men and women, people in ministry, people not. Everybody's got a purpose that you've given to fulfill. God, would you give our hearts to that? That's not a booby prize. It's not the short straw. This is the greatest calling we could ever have. God, let our hearts rejoice. Let us come with singing to Mount Zion, this great city of God with the purpose to fulfill, to bring glory to your name. God, there's nothing greater than that. So, Lord, as we close with song, Lord, would you infect our hearts this morning? 
you have liberated us and freed us to fulfill something with our lives. In Jesus' name. Oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme, conquer every Help us to live our lives for your glory with this freedom you've purchased. We pray in your name. Amen. You guys have a great week.